Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. So it is estimated that there have been over 100 billion people who've lived on the earth since the dawn of civilization. Um, Of those 100 billion people who've walked on the earth, only maybe a few hundred of them have made a significant impact on the whole world. People like Isaac Newton, Gutenberg, Einstein, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Adam Smith, he's the father of economics, Edison, the Wright brothers, Descartes, Martin Luther, Freud, Bach, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Elvis. (laughs) The king of rock and roll, right? So that's a bit of an inside joke for those of us who were at the Winter Wonderland Friday night. Thank you. Thank you to those who put that on. But in that list of people um, who've made a significant global impact, there is one person who stands head and shoulders above all the rest of them, and his name is Jesus. More attention has been given to Jesus, more devotion has been given to Jesus, more adoration has been given to Jesus, more criticism has been given to Jesus, more opposition has been given to this one person than all of the others combined. Every word he spoke that was written down has been scrutinized, has been analyzed, has been debated. More than all the words of all the historians and all the philosophers and all the scientists of the world combined. He lived on the earth about 2,000 years ago. And after 2,000 years, there's never been one minute on this planet when millions of people weren't studying or discussing or debating the words of Jesus. Think about it. Here's a person who lived in a tiny little town 2,000 years ago, and yet even his birth divides our calendar, right? B.C., A.D. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. doesn't mean after death. It's Latin. It means anno domini, which means in the year of our Lord. Jesus never wrote a book that that we know of, and yet library after library could be filled with the volumes, millions and millions of volumes that have been written about the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. As far as I know, he never painted a picture. He never wrote any music. And yet, most of the world's greatest art, uh, the world's greatest plays, the world's greatest music, the world's greatest literature, all have Jesus of Nazareth as its source. As far as we know, Jesus never raised an army. And yet, millions have fought for Jesus and millions have died for Jesus. He never traveled very far from his birthplace, Um, and yet the story of his life, his death, his resurrection has gone all around the world. He started with only a handful of followers, and yet today, 31% of the world's population claims to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. He had no formal education. He didn't attend university or seminary. 
And yet thousands of universities and seminaries and colleges and schools were built in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I think it's safe to say that Jesus has had more of an impact on the history of mankind than any other person who ever lived. It is impossible to fully explain the significance of Jesus. It is dangerous to ignore the significance of Jesus. And it is deadly to reject the significance of Jesus. So to know Jesus uh, isn't to just know about him intellectually. Right? To know Jesus is to love him. And to love Jesus is to trust him. And to trust Jesus is to be eternally transformed by him. I want to ask you this question. Um, what is the state of your heart this morning? Not your physical heart, but your spiritual heart. I'm talking uh, specifically about your relationship with Jesus. Are you on fire for Jesus this morning? Like, are you, are you zealous for him? Like, do you understand that without his grace, you would be lost? You would have no hope? Like, do you want to see his kingdom advance? Do you have a burning passion to see people get saved? To get discipled? to get equipped for ministry, to see the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in people's lives? Or, or, are you cold and distant from Jesus? Like, if you're honest, uh, you just kind of shrugged when you heard the things I just said. You know you should have a burning passion for Jesus, for his word, for his mission, for his kingdom, seeing people come to Jesus, seeing lives transformed by Jesus. But if you're honest, you would admit that you don't. Ask yourself this question, has my heart grown cold toward Jesus? So how do we know if this has happened? How do we know the state of our heart? How can we tell if we're on fire for Jesus or if we've grown cold? So we're beginning a new series today on the book of Colossians called Colossians, Christ in You, the Hope of Glory, which is a phrase from Colossians 1.27, Christ in You, the hope of glory. And that's going to be our focus as we go through Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Christ in us is the hope of glory, we want to do everything we can to fan the flame of Jesus in our hearts. Okay? So that we're on fire for Jesus, not cold and distant. Amen? Can I get an Amen. Yes, all right. <clears throat> so it's interesting. We see in the first chapter of Colossians 
that the Lord uses the same thing to diagnose the state of our heart that he uses to light it back on fire for Jesus. And that's prayer. John Piper in his book, uh, When I Don't Desire God, says, said this. What a person prays for shows the spiritual condition of their heart. If we do not pray for spiritual things like the glory of Christ and the hallowing of God's name, that means holy, the holiness of his name, and the salvation of sinners and the holiness of our hearts and the advance of the gospel and contrition for sin and the fullness of the spirit and the coming of the kingdom and the joy of knowing Christ, then it's probably because we do not desire these things. And what a devastating indictment of our hearts that is. Another quote uh, from J.I. Packer, uh, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Knowing God, another one that I highly recommend. Uh, He wrote this. He said, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man And therefore, how we pray is the most important question we can ever face. So as we begin our study of Colossians chapter 1, we are encountering an expert prayer warrior, the Apostle Paul. Other than Jesus, he was probably the greatest prayer warrior in history. And I think he has some things to teach us. Before we get into that, though, I want to give you a little bit of intro into the book of Colossians, just to kind of set the stage. Um, The author of the letter is the Apostle Paul. It was most likely written between AD, uh, AD 58 and 62. Um, He says the following in verse 1 and 2. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Now, Paul is writing to a church that he doesn't know personally. He's never been there. He he was not the one who planted this church. Colossae, the city, had been an important city in the past. Um, major trade routes had gone through there. But by the time this letter had been written, the Romans had taken over and they had diverted those trade routes. And so Colossae was now much smaller than it had been in the past. Colossae was predominantly a Gentile city. Uh, It was in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, about 100 miles uh, east of Ephesus. And despite the fact that it was predominantly Gentile, there was a sizable Jewish population living there, roughly about 50,000 people. And in this predominantly Gentile culture with a sizable Jewish population, a theological conflict began to arise. So the man who planted the Colossian church, Epaphras, uh, seems to have come to Paul Basically saying, we're facing some problems here and we need your help. We don't know exactly what those theological problems were. 
We don't know whether it was a Jewish emphasis on legalism or asceticism. Uh, We don't know if it was Greek Gnosticism that was elevating the spiritual over the physical. That's kind of like a hallmark of Gnosticism. What we do know is that in some way they were diminishing the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to refute those teachings. Sometimes it's called the the Colossian heresy. And he does so by focusing on the supremacy of Jesus and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he starts out by giving them a good solid teaching on the supremacy of Jesus. But before that, before that, and this is our focus today, he fervently prays for them. Prays for them. So let's look at verses three through eight. And then the end of verse 11 and beginning of verse 12. I'll put that at the end. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. And then down to Colossians uh, 1, 11, and 12. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So the first thing I want to point out that we can learn from Paul is this. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. He says, we always pray for you and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he later says, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So regularly thanking God is a good indicator of our spiritual health. Being thankless is an indicator of spiritual unhealth. And thanklessness can get even worse. It can actually turn into complaining, right? At that point, not only are we not operating with a thankful heart, we're going in the opposite direction, right? Complaining. Why is that a big deal? Everybody complains, right? For one, thankfulness is essential to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 105.1 says this, Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. So do you see the connection there between thankfulness and letting the whole world know what he has done? It is out of the outpouring of a thankful heart that we share our testimony. 
that we share the good news of the gospel, that we serve and love in Christ's name. It's interesting. Uh, in Romans 1, when Paul is describing the perversity of the human heart, like how sinful we can be, he lists several things like greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. Like he lists all these things. He goes into a lot of detail. But right at the beginning of that list, at the beginning of his discussion on the depravity of the human heart, is this issue of thanklessness. Romans 1.21 says this. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. So we don't typically think of thanklessness as a sin, much less a great sin, right? But apparently it is. Why? Because God deserves to be thanked and praised and glorified for everything he's done, for everything he is doing, for everything that he will do. And so it's a pretty good indicator of our spiritual unhealth if we're not very thankful to the Lord. So what, we, what, what can we learn here about thankfulness? What, what is Paul thankful for? Um, well, he thanks God for his grace. He thanks God for the good news of the gospel and the effect that it had on the Colossians. And he thanks God that the good news of the gospel is going out over the whole earth, that it's bearing fruit, that it's changing lives. So there's a lesson to be learned here. If you feel stuck in your prayer life, or you feel, you feel like your heart has grown cold, just start by thanking God for things. See how far you can go. Start with uh, five minutes, then 10, then 15. Can you go 20 minutes thanking God for all the things that he's done in your life? I think that such thankfulness can ignite the coals in our relationship with Jesus, okay? particularly when our thankfulness is coupled with humility. When we begin to see all the times that God has rescued us, that he's protected us, that he's blessed us, and not because we've earned it, but many times he's blessed us in spite of us. Right? All the times that he has shown us undeserved grace. As we thank God for those things, it will begin to ignite the coals in our heart. It will begin to ignite our love for Jesus. So the beginning of Paul's prayer here is thankfulness, but then he goes on to pray 
that the people he's praying for would become fruitful. We see that in verses 9 through 14, which says this. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now that these Colossians have become Christians, um, now that there's a church in Colossae, question is, is their work now complete? No. It has only just begun. Paul doesn't want these new believers to remain immature. He wants them to grow into mature Christians. How does that happen? Is it just learning stuff so we can know more? Like so we can quote scriptures and feel proud of ourselves? No, Paul wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God so that, so that they can have spiritual wisdom, so they can honor and please the Lord and bear good fruit. To put it simply, uh, it is knowledge that leads to action. Knowledge that leads to action. What, what, what's the knowledge? Well, it's the Bible, it's doctrine. It's theology. Like, for instance, who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is salvation by faith? Uh, how does Jesus save? How does the Holy Spirit change us? How does the Holy Spirit empower us? What, is, what does the Holy Spirit empower us to do? Um, what is my identity in Christ? How is what God says I am different from what the world says I am? What is a Christian worldview? Who's the devil? How do I pray? How do I hear from the Lord? How does God guide us? And so on and so on. How do we get such knowledge? Well, we attend church, we worship, we pray, attend a small group, attend a discipleship class, we study the Bible ourselves, we read Christian books, and so on. That is how we are filled with the knowledge of God. And so what are the actions that follow as a result of being filled with the knowledge of God? Well, being thankful to God sharing our testimony, sharing the good news of the gospel, serving the least of these, 
discipling people, maybe even somebody who's just a few steps behind you, visiting the sick, visiting the incarcerated. These are all biblical things, right? Serving in the community, working for justice, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Whatever expression of Jesus' love the Holy Spirit leads you to. Such are the actions that being filled with the knowledge of God lead to. Both are important. Knowledge, which leads to action. And I would argue that uh, we can only grow so much by pursuing just knowledge. Um, Spiritual growth happens through action as well. Taking what we've learned and applying it. Jesus modeled that. Uh, He teaches disciples a bit. Then he'd send them out in pairs, right? They'd come back. They'd process their experiences, talk with Jesus. Jesus would teach them some more. Then he'd send them back out again, right? Kind of like OJT, on-the-job training, or uh, apprenticing. That's another way to look at it. If you are just listening to sermons or just doing Bible studies and you're not taking what you're learning and translating that into some form, some kingdom expression, some form of being the hands and feet of Jesus, doesn't matter if it's in the church or outside the church, in the community, maybe it's in your workplace, maybe it's with kids, teens, Moms, single moms, seniors, or maybe it's just encouraging someone with your testimony. Maybe it's mentoring somebody, discipling somebody, going and doing jail ministry. But the idea we learn from Paul here is that being filled with the knowledge of God should eventually bear fruit in our lives. And knowledge leading to action is another key, another key to stoking the coals in our heart for our love of Christ. When Jesus says, whatever you did unto the least of these, you did it unto me, that is knowledge of God leading to the bearing of fruit. And that's another way we can fan the flames of our love for Christ in our heart. Okay, I want us to take a deeper look uh, at two of these verses, verses 13 and 14, which say this. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. I want to talk about this idea of being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom of God. So this word kingdom uh, occurs three, depending on the translation, um, but this one is uh, King James, occurs 369 times in the Bible, and 162 of those are in the New Testament. Now the central theme of Jesus' preaching and his ministry was the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven, Sometimes the kingdom of Christ. But what is meant 
by this phrase, kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God a physical space or is it a spiritual reality? And who are the subjects of this kingdom? And does the kingdom of God exist now because Jesus already came? Or does it exist in the future when Jesus will come back again? So we're not talking primarily of a kingdom that involves geography or politics per se, but instead a kingdom that involves Jesus' kingly rule, his reign, and his sovereign control. The kingdom of God is the realm where God reigns supreme, where Jesus Christ is king. In this kingdom, God's authority is recognized and his will is obeyed. It's the Lord's present spiritual reign over his people, and it is Jesus' future reign when he comes again. If you remember, John the Baptist began his ministry announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Remember that. And then Jesus took over. Okay, Matthew 4.17 says this. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus taught his followers, too, how to enter this kingdom. Matthew 7, 21 says this, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. In the parables, Jesus gave even more insight into the kingdom. Matthew 13, 11 says this. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. Jesus also urged his followers to pray for the coming of his kingdom. He said to pray, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus also promised that he would come back in glory to establish his kingdom as an eternal inheritance for his people. So what does all that mean? Jesus made it clear that the struggle that he was engaged in was a battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. He came to invade this present evil age with the age that is to come, attacking the enemy's rule and his reign over the lives of people everywhere. Jesus' words, Jesus' works, both demonstrated the presence of God's kingdom, his, his rule on the earth. That in Jesus' life and his ministry, His kingdom had come. It had come, but not yet fully come. We need to know, this is very, very, very important. We need to know that the church lives in between the times. Between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom of God. The future age, the age that is to come, entered into the present when Jesus came. And through his death and his resurrection, 
Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. And yet it is not fully here yet. It will not fully be here. It will not be consummated until Jesus' return. And so we live in between the times of Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom and his consummation of the kingdom. Which means, here's why this is important. It means that we see evidence of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God when we see salvations, when we see healings, when we see deliverances, when we see marriages being reconciled, when we see prodigals coming home. Right? We live in a time when we do see miraculous answers to prayers. But we also see people um, who we pray for and they don't get healed and they die. We live in an era where the enemy's power has been curved, curbed, but he has not yet been rendered powerless. He knows, he, the enemy, the devil, he knows he is going to lose in the end. So he's doing everything he can to take out as many people as he can in the meantime. So in essence, we live in a world at war. We do. And the church is God's army to advance God's kingdom, bringing that future reign and rule of God to the earth. Now, when I say that, I want to give a caveat. Because we tend to think of this through the lens of the ways of this world and not through the lens of Jesus. And I don't want you to take that statement the wrong way. Much like the zealots tried to do with Jesus, trying to get him to establish his kingdom by might and by power, there are some who would think that the way to advance God's kingdom in this world is through might and power. So recently there's been a new teaching that's come out uh, called Dominion Theology. Dominion Theology. It's a teaching that says, as Christians, uh, we should be working to reform the world socially and politically. Essentially through a systematic takeover of seven areas of influence, they, they call them mountains, seven mountains, uh, that Christians need to control. Okay, those seven mountains are government, education, they'll be up on the screen, government, education, media, arts and entertainment, religion, family, and business. And the point, of course, is this. It is to establish a global Christian theocracy and prepare the world for Jesus' return. Now, if it's true that the kingdom of God depends on our human efforts to change the world through social and political reform, it will never come. Look at the state of the world today, right? Wars, corruption, 
nations torn by disagreements, suspicion, pride. The very best human efforts had never been able to bring this perfect world, this utopia that people dream of. Even Christian theocracies, right? Whenever those have been attempted throughout history, uh, they have been tragedies. All our best efforts will fail to conquer all the nations of the world under the political rule of Jesus Christ. If you are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, or even just the beginning of that, which are called the Beatitudes, you will know that Jesus' kingdom is the opposite of man's kingdom. Right? It is the meek. It is the humble. Uh, it is those who hunger and thirst for justice. It is the merciful. It is those who work for peace. It is the pure in heart. Uh, it is those who are persecuted for doing right that are blessed. Right? Jesus Christ alone has the power to affect all the changes that this world needs. And we are to constantly pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while we're praying that prayer, that Jesus would come and he would establish his kingdom here on the earth, there are some things that we are to do. First, we are to work to establish the kingdom of God in our own lives. Like that's where we start. Okay? Jesus must be the sovereign king of our own lives. We are a terrible testimony of the future reality of the kingdom of God when people look at us and they see hypocrites. We can be on one side, it's like a spectrum. We can be on one side where there is no discernible difference between us and the world, right? No evidence of holiness, no evidence of transformation, no evidence of the gospel having had any effect on our lives. Or we can be on the other end of the spectrum where we're too good for the world, right? We're filled with pride, or maybe we're religious, or maybe we're judgmental. And you look at us and you see very little grace in us. I'm sure you've heard this before. Sometimes the only Bible that people will read is how we live our lives. Through our words, through our actions, right? So that's the first thing, to let Jesus be the sovereign Lord of our own lives, okay? The second is we're to make every effort to bring the kingdom of God into other people's lives, right? It's the kind of things that I mentioned earlier. Knowledge about who God is and who we are in Christ leading to action. Again, being thankful to God sharing our testimony, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, serving the least of these, discipling others, visiting the sick, working through justice, working towards justice, working to end oppression wherever we see it, trying to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Holy Spirit, show me today how I can be the hands and feet of Jesus, right? So back to my original question. What is the state of your heart? 
Are you on fire for Jesus? Or has your heart grown cold? Have you grown distant from the Lord? Have you become apathetic? And I've given you plenty of suggestions this morning um, for reigniting the coals in your heart towards Jesus. And in this series, Colossians, Christ in You, the Hope of Glory, we're going to be exploring this a lot. So make sure you don't miss any of those messages. I would also encourage you to, uh, at the end of the service today and continuing on, like make this a regular practice, come up for prayer, right? God can do way more than we can. And uh, if, I'm telling you, if you truly want the coals in your heart to be ignited in your love of Jesus, he will not leave you hanging. He will stoke those flames. He absolutely loves you. And he wants, he wants that intimacy of relationship with you that you have not yet experienced. Where you just know that you know that you know how much he loves you. And out of that love, everything we do, it flows out of that. It's no longer like I got to try to be good. It's no longer I got to try to serve people or any of that. It just flows. Like that's the answer. It's the beginning of this whole thing. It is knowledge of the depth of the love of God for you personally. And then everything just spills out from that. So I do encourage you at the end of the service, come and let us pray for you to have more of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray uh, you would fan the flames in our heart for you. You would fill us with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of the love of God. And God, that that would just overflow, that that would just bear fruit. We would be so filled with the knowledge and the love of God that it would just be overflowing with your love and your grace and your wisdom and your power, God, wherever we go. I pray this morning, may your kingdom come in us and then flow through us. God, I pray that we would be a people who are known for our love for you, our love for each other, our love for the lost, the last, and the least. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.